This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I'd like for you to look with me this morning in Mark chapter 14 and verse number 53 and keep that song in mind as we read the events that are going to unfold in this passage of Scripture. We'll read beginning in verse number 53 all the way through verse number 65. So we come to verse number 53, we see that the Lord Jesus, who has been with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there in that garden he prayed to his Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As we learned, that cup was the cup of our sin. It was not simply a cup of suffering, although that was involved. It was the cup of our sin that the Lord Jesus, the one who was the sinless one, was to be made to sin for us. And having submitted now to the will of his father, he experienced the betrayal of Judas and the arrest, and now it is time for his trial, although it was an untimely trial, because the Jewish leaders in their efforts uh, to conceal their wickedness and their underhanded dealings tried him in the middle of the night we come to verse number 53 and we read of these events i hope you'll read along with me and they led jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and peter followed him afar off even into the palace of the high priest and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further of witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. As we come to this passage, we see 
that the trial of the Lord Jesus has begun. His trial will be really in two phases. He will be tried before his own people, the Jews, and he will be tried before the Roman officials. This trial will constitute the most unjust act of any body, any judicial body, in the history of the world. We live in a time where there is a lot of attention being called to injustices which are done in our nation and in our world. And I want you to know that injustices have been done since the beginning of time. And injustices will continue to be done throughout all of human history until the just one comes to rule and reign. Jesus Christ. But of all the injustices that have ever been carried out, here we have the greatest injustice that was ever done and will ever be done in the history of the world. When the just one stood before unjust men. And I want to speak to you on that subject this morning, the just before the unjust because truly what you have is a reversal of roles the judge the righteous judge the lord jesus is standing before the condemned and the condemned the wicked sinners are sitting in the seat of judgment while he stands in the place of the accused but there's coming a day when the lord jesus will come as the righteous judge and he will sit in the seat of judgment and all those who despise him and all those who have rejected him will stand before him and receive righteous judgment. So as we come to this passage, we, we note here that the just is before the unjust. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18, the Bible tells us, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. You see, the Lord Jesus came as the just one to die for the very ones who were going to condemn him and who did condemn him to death. And why did he do so, Peter said, that he might bring us, because we're included in that number of unjust ones that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so we have the scene, the Lord Jesus having been betrayed and arrested, now his trial, his beginning. They take him first to the house of Annas and now to the house of Caiaphas, and there the Sanhedrin, uh, the elders of Israel, the, the judicial leaders of Jerusalem have congregated and there they are going to try in a puppet court the Lord Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 19 I hope you'll turn there with me Deuteronomy chapter number 19 the Lord gives to his people his plan his righteous plan for how judgments should be carried out in Deuteronomy 19 in verse number 15 we have the Lord speaking concerning the accusations made against one who is going to trial. 
The Bible says in verse 15, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. So if we're bringing charges against someone in a court of law, it cannot be the say or the, the witness of one person. It must be the witness of at least two people. And the matter must be established. In other words, the witnesses must agree in their testimony. Verse 16, if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. In other words, here he's dealing with the potential for false witnesses to bring somebody in on a, on a charge that is not true in order to bring some punishment to that person. And he says, if this person who brings witness is a false witness, then if it is found to be true that they are false witnesses, then they should suffer the penalty that they sought to place upon the person they accused. Now, in these verses, we see that the Lord Jesus and the Lord in his word, rather, is very clear to us and very clear to the nation of Israel concerning how justice was to be measured and carried out among his people. During the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Jewish nation, uh, having uh, taken these truths that were communicated to them in the law of God, had developed a very sophisticated system of jurisprudence, a, a system of justice to carry out the things that were uh, outlined for them in the Mosaic law. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, and I want to read from uh, his writing and, and, and give you some understanding of how these courts worked. He writes that the councils or the courts could be established in any town with at least 120 men who were heads of their household. In other words, there had to be at least 120 families residing in a town. And if there were at least that many, then you could establish a local court. Each council known as the Sanhedrin provided legal governance to its community. These local councils were composed of 23 men, often drawn from the leadership of the synagogue. As an odd number of council members ensured that whenever they voted on an issue or determined a verdict at a trial, there would always be a majority decision. The Supreme Court of Israel was located in Jerusalem and met daily in the temple, except on the Sabbath and other holy days. Known as the Great Sanhedrin, it consisted of 71 members, including the high priest who presided over the council and representatives from the chief priests, elders, and scribes. The Great Sanhedrin was the most powerful Jewish legislative and judicial body. Based on the stipulations articulated in the Old Testament, the Jewish legal system provided those accused of a crime with several protections. A public trial held during daylight hours. In other words, it's, it's in a time when people know what proceedings are taking place. 
an adequate opportunity to make a defense, and the rejection of any charge unless it was supported by the testimony of at least two witnesses. A perjury was taken very seriously. If a person falsely accused another of a crime, the penalty of that crime was to be enacted upon the perjurer. In cases where the death penalty was enacted, the people who testified against the accused had to inflict the first blows of execution. Since the Jewish form of capital punishment was stoning, this meant the witnesses had to cast the first stones. Doing so ensured that they had a clear conscience in standing behind their testimony and would back up their words with action. In capital cases, Jewish law mandated that a full day must pass between the announcement of the guilty verdict and the carrying out of the death sentence. During that intervening time period, the members of the court were required to fast, to take time to reflect soberly on the verdict they had delivered. The delay also allowed for further testimony or evidence to be found. Consequently, trials were not conducted on the day before a feast when fasting was not permitted. When it operated according to its rules and regulations, the Jewish system of jurisprudence was merciful and fair. But at the trial of Jesus, the great Sanhedrin disregarded nearly every one of its own statutes. Mark in this section focuses on uh, this second part of the Jewish trial that took place and MacArthur writes, everything that happened that night was a miscarriage of justice. The wicked men would falsely condemn the perfect son of God, making it the ultimate injustice. In clear violation of Mosaic law, Jesus' trial took place in private, at night, away from the temple, and just hours before the Passover began. His enemies brought charges without credible witnesses, gave no opportunity for a proper defense, pronounced an illegitimate verdict, and sought immediate execution the same day. From the arraignment to the interrogation to the testimonies to the sentencing, nothing about the proceedings was legal or just. These events all took place in the trial of the Lord Jesus. It's wicked men who were sworn and who had taken an oath and a pledge to uphold and judge according to the law of God, disregarded all of the law of God in order that they might accomplish their selfish agenda to have the Lord Jesus Christ put to death. And therefore we see that the just stands before the unjust. Now, as we look at this passage, we, we're going to note three things, and I, I hope you'll write them down and follow along. Number one, we're going to note the accusations against Jesus. Then secondly, we're going to note the interrogation of Jesus. And then finally, the condemnation of Jesus. I want us to note, first of all, the accusations against Jesus. In verse number 55, the Bible says, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. 
Here we have the first violation. Well, maybe not the first, but a, another of, of many violations of the, uh, the law of God. This council, these judges were not to bring charges against anyone. The charges were to be brought by the people. The judges were simply to hear them. But here we have an insight into the motive. And of course, as we've followed all through the New Testament uh, Gospels, we understand that the motive of the religious leaders from the very time that Jesus began his public ministry, their motive was to put him to death. And so they're seeking someone to bring an accusation. They're looking for witnesses to come into the court to testify so that they may put him to death. And notice what the Bible says in verse 55, and they found none. Now we understand that witnesses came forward, but what we understand is that their testimony was not a testimony that would hold up in court. In verse 56, the Bible said, for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. You see, they finally found witnesses, but those witnesses told conflicting stories. And then the Bible centers and Mark centers as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon those who use this charge and accusation concerning the destruction of the temple. Now they're referring back to John chapter number two. In fact, I'd like to ask you to turn there with me. John chapter number two, the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his earthly life and ministry, the final time at the end or nearing the end of his life. In John chapter 2, we have the record of the first occurrence of that. And we also find here the statement that these witnesses used against him. Notice it, if you would, please, in John chapter number 2 and verse number 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. At no time did the Lord ever say, I will destroy this temple. And he is not speaking here of the physical temple. In John chapter 2, he's not speaking of the physical temple. Uh, I mean, the literal building called the temple, what he is speaking of is his body. He's speaking of the fact that he, the son of God, is residing now among men. He is tabernacled among men. And he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it again. And so they found one who would come and distort intentionally the words of Jesus so as to, 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 to lie and make him appear to be someone who was blaspheming God and blaspheming the religion of the Jews. And by the way, 2,000 years after his trial, the Lord Jesus still is unjustly accused by the wicked, is he not? 
Some 2,000 years after these events took place, today there are still many who stand up and accuse Jesus with their false accusations and their never-ending questions. What is it that they seek to do? Well, they seek to do the same things the religious leaders sought to do. They seek, number one, to discredit his claims to be the Son of God. They seek to tell um, those who, who hear and testify of his works that he is not truly the Son of God. But they had never seen one who could cast out devils just with the authority of his word. They had never seen one who could say to a dead man who had been dead four days, Lazarus, come forth and see him come out of that grave. They had never seen that before. Uh, they had never seen one be able to restore sight to the blind or make the lame walk. They'd never heard one who could say to the winds and the waves, peace be still, and the, the calm would come. They'd never seen that before. There was no explanation for that, by the way, only that this was the very Son of God. And yet they sought to discredit his claims. They sought to diminish his miraculous works with their attempts to provide natural explanations for supernatural acts. By the way, that's taking place today, right? When, when the so-called scholars try to explain away the miracles of Jesus and, and to deceive us and to think that those were not supernatural actions, I want to tell you, friend, the very God of gods was there that day, and he spoke this universe into existence, and he has done many marvelous works, and they can seek to diminish him, and they can seek to discredit him, but nothing ever can and nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. They distorted his words. We have a, a court of public opinion today that would tell you that the Bible surely could not be the words of God. It's just simply the words of men. There are people who would tell you that the words of Scripture are no longer applicable in this current culture, that we have now become enlightened beyond the, 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 uh, the words of Scripture, that, that our, our thinking has evolved, and, and we no longer hold to these archaic ideas about morality. And they seek to distort the words of Jesus. They seek to deride the Lord and mock him and ridicule him and his church with their cutting words and their contemptuous tones. They seek to cast doubt upon his promises. The accusations against Jesus. They're alive today as they were then. We see a second thing, and that is the interrogation of Jesus. Notice, if you would, please, in verse number 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he, that's the Lord Jesus, held his peace and answered nothing. Now, here we hear the, the, the high priest, in the midst of his frustration and in the midst of his fury, he rises up and he said, Aren't you going to answer these charges? But the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. By the way, hundreds and hundreds of years before that trial ever occurred, Isaiah, the prophet, wrote in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, speaking of the Lord Jesus, speaking of that moment, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
He is brought as the lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. There was no reason for him to open his mouth. There was no reason for him to respond to those charges. Why? Because it was obvious. It was clear they were false charges. The conflicting testimonies of those who came against him, the distortion of his words, it was obvious to all that this was a puppet court. And so the Lord had no need to respond to all these accusations. And finally, the high priest cuts to the chase in verse number 61 when he asks this question. The Bible says here, again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? By the way, that's the question of all questions. Who are you? Tell us who you are. By the way, that's what the world needs to know. And that is the question that you all must answer. Who are you? Now, in his response, because he responds to this question, and he responds full well knowing how they would receive his answer. He knew that the moment that he answered that question by affirming himself to be God, that they would seek to put him to death. Yet, still he answered that question. By the way, he cannot deny himself. And so notice the, the response of the Lord Jesus that we find here in verse number 62. And Jesus said, I am. Now here we find the revelation of his person. The revelation of his person. What does he say about himself? He says, I am. By the way, when he appeared to Abraham and he introduced himself to Abraham, he said, I am. When he, when he appeared to Moses in, in the wilderness and Moses said, now, uh, Lord, if you want me to go back and, and, and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go, who, who am I going to say is the one I'm speaking for? And he said, you tell him the I am hath sent you. I want you to know who our God is. He is the I am. He is not the I was. He is the I am. He is the one who spoke this universe into existence. He is the one that formed man out of the dust of the ground. He set the stars in the heavens. I want to tell you he is the one who created the seas and all the trees and all the plant life. He is the son of God, and he stood before them that day. And when they said, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed, he said, I am. Amen. I want to tell you without doubt, there is no doubt in my mind that when he spoke those words, friend, the power of God was manifest in that place. And those wicked men in that moment, they knew they were not dealing with just a man. They knew they were dealing with the great I am. But because of the darkness and the depravity of their wicked hearts, they went on in their scheme to put him to death. Notice not only the revelation of his person, but the revelation of his power. He said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now he's shaking them to the core of their foundation here. The one who is standing before them as accused. The one who is being brought before them as a criminal, as an offender, as a blasphemer, 
the one who will soon be found guilty, says to them, fellas, I want you to know something. I am the I am, and you are going to see me at the right hand of power. You are going to know that I am the Son of God, that I have authority, and you are going to understand in that moment that you are not a judge, that your judgment does not matter. What you're going to know in that moment is that I am the judge. And I want to tell you, friend, the Lord is the righteous judge. And he is coming again. And he will sit in judgment. And the nations will come before him. And all those who have rejected the Lord Jesus will be confronted with their wickedness and their sin. And those who have rejected him will be cast into the lake of fire where they will spend all eternity. And he is confronting them in that moment and saying to them you 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 fellows may be trying me right now but there's coming a day when i'm going to try you and you're going to see it we see the revelation of his person and the revelation of his power in his interrogation I want you to notice with me the last thing we look at this morning, and that is the condemnation of Jesus. We saw the accusations, the false accusations that came against him. We understand that those accusations are still being made today. We see the interrogation, and in that interrogation, he reveals his person and his power. But in spite of that revelation, they condemn him to death. The condemnation of Jesus. Notice it again in verse 63. Then the high priest rent his clothes. This was a symbolic act. The priest uh, in shock, in awe, being totally uh, blown away by the height of of someone's uh, hypocrisy or or someone's blasphemy would rend his garments. And here we find uh, the high priest in this dramatic action. By the way, we're no strangers to dramatic action today, right? You just carry a camera through Congress, and you're going to see this. The things that are said, the injustices that are perpetrated, the lies and the deception uh, that is being spread in our nation. We're all very familiar with this. We we all understand the, the climate that Jesus was dealing with here because we see it as it continues. He rends his garments and he says, what need we any further witnesses? (laughs) They didn't have any to begin with. Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty and some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Now we notice here in this condemnation, we notice their claim. Their claim was that he had blasphemed. The blasphemy took place in their mind when he, who they considered to be the son or the illegitimate son of Joseph and the son of Mary, they uh, viewed him as blasphemous because he claimed to be the son of God. But as we saw earlier in the text, he has provided all the evidence he has backed up every claim 
They claim that he has been guilty of blasphemy. Then they condemn him. They say, this sin is a sin unto death. They have condemned him to be guilty of death. And then we see their cruelty. They spit on him. They covered his face and smote him. Here were the people who were to uphold the law of God. Here were people who were to be reflective and to be sober. Here were people who were to show mercy and grace whenever possible, spewing their hatred against God and spewing the wickedness of their heart upon Jesus by spitting on his face in an act designed to humiliate the Son of God. They covered his face with some covering. They begin to beat him. They begin to smack him. They begin to say, prophesy and tell us who it is that smote thee. I want you to know that when every blow was administered, he knew which hand had smitten his face. We see their cruelty. We live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that hates his church. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But to be honest with you, as we've seen this evolve in our nation, this enmity against God and against his church, as we've seen it take place, it is quite troubling. But the Lord told us it would happen and told us not to think it's strange concerning the fiery trials that would come to us. In fact, the Lord told his disciples before he ever went to the cross, he told them, fellas, I want you to know in Mark chapter 10, And verse 33, he said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. He told them what was going to happen, and it did happen. And even though they saw all those negative things take place, they forgot about the promise of the positive, and that was that he was going to rise again. And by the way, when we're dealing with the negativity of our hour, we need to reflect not only upon the negativity, but we need to reflect upon the promise that he is coming again. We're not in the hands of wicked men. We're in the hands of God. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me. In Mark chapter 13, when you see these things come to pass, be not troubled. So may God help us to bring our trouble to him and understand that though the world condemns him and though the world condemns us, The injustices of the world will not prevent the justice of God from being carried out. In 1 Peter chapter number 2, in verse number 18, Peter writes to Christians who are dealing with persecution. He begins in verse 18 saying, Servants, Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only with the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, 
The Bible tells us that we are going to suffer wrongfully. We're going to suffer injustices. He said, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults? The word buffeted there means afflicted. If you are afflicted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. In other words, if you're being punished for what you did, you deserve it, right? But he says, if when ye do well and suffer. In other words, you don't do anything wrong. You do everything right. And in spite of that, you suffer for it. Ye take it patiently. Notice what he says in verse number 20. This is acceptable with God. You say, well, it's not acceptable to me. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I being persecuted? Why am I suffering? God says, it's acceptable to me. Why? Because it was something that was poured out upon him. And if we're going to know him, if we're going to commune with him, if we're going to experience the power of his resurrection, we must learn to live in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Can you imagine being a witness at the trial and the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus? Can you imagine the rage that would be foaming up inside of you and what you would want to say to that howling mob and how you would in your inability still trying to find a way to communicate to these people what unjust act they have just perpetrated and how you would like to see them punished for it. Can, can you not identify with that pain and, and that, that anguish that would be coming out of the soul of those who were standing by? How did Jesus then deal with it? the one who created them, the one who came to save them. How did he deal with it? I'll tell you how he dealt with it. He committed himself, Peter writes. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He left it in the hands of God. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what unfairness has come to your life. But I can tell you that if you know Jesus, you're going to deal with it. And when you deal with it, if you deal with it in a way that is pleasing to him, you commit it to God. You put it in his hands. You see, though the suffering was great, though they condemned him unjustly, the result of his death was going to bring life to you and I. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? Because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? I want to tell you, he looked through time and eternity. He looked uh, through all the world, and he looked into the congregation of the Tabernacle Baptist Church this morning, and he saw the faces of all who would put their faith and trust in him. And because he saw you in that moment, he was willing to endure the cross. And then he looked beyond this moment into eternity and saw that all of us 
would gather around his throne and worship him forever and praise him and magnify him and be reunited with those that we loved and those who've gone before us. I want to tell you because of that, he was willing to endure the cross. And he's called upon us to endure the cross. He's called us to bear the reproach. The Bible said that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Moses, what are you doing? You're an Egyptian. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm one of God's people. Well, Moses, you've got it made. You've got all the money in the world. You're the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You're surely not going to give that up just to be a slave. Oh, yes, I am. Because the slave has a better future than the richest in Egypt. The reproach of Christ pays eternal dividends, and I'm willing to bear it. The question is this morning, are you willing to bear it? Hey, young person, are you willing to bear it? The reproach of Christ? Hey, on the job, are you willing to bear it? The reproach of Christ? You see, it's going to cost our children more and more to know God and to serve God. This world is filled with hatred and animosity towards God's people and towards the Lord Jesus. And this affliction, these accusations, this condemnation, these interrogations will continue until the coming of the righteous one. And may God help us to be faithful. So how do we wrap this up this morning? Well, I think we need to be encouraged to know that the injustices of men do not prevent the justice of God. And though you may be suffering some injustice, if you belong to God, God is working this according to his plan. Psalm 76 and verse 10, the Bible says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. What does God do? He takes the wicked wrath of men and he uses it for his glory and honor. You say, well, how's he doing that in the world today? That's up to him, right? In the case of his son, he was using the wrath of men to put his son on the cross so that his son might die for you and I and so that we might be redeemed and have everlasting life. Though that we who are truly guilty and worthy of death would be made just and receive life. You see, the injustices of men do not prevent the justice of God. I want you to think about this this morning you're on, the, you're on the panel. You're sitting in the seat of judgment. Jesus, the Son of God, stands before you. I remember the words of Pilate as he brought out the bloody body of Jesus and he said, behold the man. I want you to behold him this morning. I want you to behold the one who is sighed and body is emaciated the beard plucked from his face, the blood flowing from his body, stripped naked of his garments. As they spit upon him, as they drive the thorns into his brow, I want to ask you to behold him, and I want to ask you, is he the son of the blessed? Do you acknowledge him for who he is?
the Son of God? Do you acknowledge that he is just and you are not? Are you willing to say he is righteous and I'm a sinner? I'm guilty? Let me tell you, if you'll acknowledge your guilt before him and the fact that you are worthy of death, you will receive mercy and not condemnation and you will receive life and not death. And if you've forgotten that and you've received him but you've forgotten that, you ought to thank him today. And if you have not received him, then I want to say to you in this moment, you need to receive the Lord Jesus. And by not receiving him, you're rejecting him. And there is coming a day when he will judge you. But in these moments, you have an opportunity to respond to his grace. I invite you to do so. I want to ask you, Christian friend, are you willing to bear the reproach of Jesus? Young person, are you willing to take a stand for Jesus? Are you willing to say, I don't care what others say about me? I'm going to live for him. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used his word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.